0: You're listening to episode 182 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. Well, I've got a great conversation for you today with author Jay Kim. He's been on the podcast before, but he joins me to talk about his newest release. We talk about life in the digital age and specifically uh, why analog, why in-person, what he calls embodied Christianity matters for your faith. A really helpful conversation. Also, it's hard to believe, but The Five Masculine Instincts has now been out for almost three months and we're closing in on Father's Day. The book continues to sell and do well. And I just wanted to say thank you for all of you who have supported it and shared it. It really does mean a world to me. It's been so much fun to be able to talk about the book and do interviews. And if you're looking for a Father's Day gift with Father's Day just around the corner, maybe for the men in your life, uh, I just want to offer the book as a great option. Several churches have been picking it up and offering it to all of the men in their congregation, which I'm really honored by. If there's anything I can do to help, I'm always happy to do it. Once again, thanks for the listening. Well, I'm joined on the podcast today by Jay Kim. He's a friend of the podcast, been on here before. Jay serves as the lead pastor of Westgate Church in Silicon Valley and on the leadership team of the Regeneration Project. His writing has been featured in places like Christianity Today, the Gospel Coalition, Relevant Magazine. He lives with his family in Silicon Valley, and as I mentioned, uh, he previously joined me on the podcast to talk about his book, Analog Church, really a great book that I found myself recommending uh, many, many times. I actually think I don't currently have a copy on my shelf because I'm pretty sure I've given away two copies of that book, so I need to order it with the new book he's now got coming out. Uh, Really excited, the next step in the work he's been doing. He joins me today to talk about his book, Analog Christian, Cultivating Contentment, Resilience, and Wisdom in the Digital Age. Jay, congratulations on the first book. Congratulations on the second one that's soon to be released, and uh, great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks so much, Chase. Yeah, really, really looking forward to chatting with you. Well, it's been fun to watch uh, the progress with Analog Church, the first book. I know it was uh, Outreach Resource of the Year, Gospel Coalition Book Award. Uh, the book was, I think we even talked about when I had you on, it was it was so timely considering what we were all, the changes we were making due to the pandemic and the way technology was changing, the way we were meeting um, I felt like that book really was an important message to hold on to in the midst of that season, but I'd love to hear from you. It's been a couple years now uh, a little update on what that book's done, maybe surprises along the way for you as well.
1: yeah, that's a great question i um you know, like you said, we as you well know as as a writer and published author yourself, you know the process of uh dreaming up a book and then putting pen to paper or, you know, fingers to keyboards, whatever it might be. It's a long process. So when I started writing Analog Church, it was 2018. It was two solid years before the pandemic changed everything. So I had no idea that, you know, we were going to enter a season where digital technology would be sort of the air we breathe in a in a new way. Uh, so we, we you know, full disclosure, we did have some hesitation about releasing the book. Um, Analog Church came out the same month. It actually came out two weeks after everything shut down and went online. And so the publisher and I, we had some conversations back and forth, you know, does this make sense to try to release a book that's arguing for embodied in presence experience as the, the, lo- the local church in a season when that's not possible. Um, but long story short, we decided to release the book when we did. And, uh, in hindsight, it's been a real gift, you know, to me personally, I, um, if there was anything I would want to say in a season of pandemic, when we were really shut down and locked down, uh, it was that book. So, uh, the last couple of years have been really interesting. Uh, the book I think has, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful because I think it's given some language to folks, uh, to sort of name the angst that we have felt in this imposed distance and separation that we've had to live with for a while now. Obviously, we're, you know, coming out of that a little bit and, uh, it's, it's starting to feel like we're, we're, um, sort of towing the line between digital and analog in, New ways. And so, yeah, some of my thinking has been, you know, not necessarily changed, but it's been affected. I uh, feel like I have more clarity now two years in to the pandemic. Ultimately, uh, the basic ideas and the premise that I present in the book that embodied humans need other embodied humans and embodied realities. I think these last two years have uh, sort of affirmed that idea, not just for me, but for many of us. Um, and at the same time, I've got to say, I, I'm so grateful for digital technologies and what they've afforded us in these last two years. It's hard to imagine what it would have been like during the pandemic had we not at least had, uh, some of the digital opportunities that we've had. But ultimately they've been a pathway to helping us, I think, tap into that deep, uh, you know, residual longing inside of all of us that we just, we need Physical presence, and uh, I think most people can relate to that, so it's been an interesting journey, but uh, a journey i'm I'm grateful for
0: well, I think what I was thankful for with the book's timing was it helped me even as we spent a season doing online services uh, it helped me recognize or pay closer attention to. What if this is helpful, and and what I was really anxious to get back to? What really was sort of irreplaceable with technology that mattered when we were together. So in some ways, it helped me. Um, yeah, it was an interesting time to read the book, and I'm I can't imagine to promote and publish the book. But it it, it sort of gave me a roadmap to 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 explore and to think more deeply about the choices I was making during that season. Um, it it in some ways connected, obviously, to this next work that you've done. You've gone from analog church to the book you have coming out later this summer, uh, analog Christian. Uh, they're not the same book, but they they're obviously strong connections. What was it that you felt was undone, or that got you moving in the direction of this second book uh, with similar themes? Yeah, you know, when I first
1: started thinking about the first book uh, back in 20, you know, it was before 2018. I probably really started percolating on these ideas in like 2016 or something like that, 2015, 2016. Um, I actually, the the book that's coming out now, Analog Christian, that was the first book that was actually on my mind. And so I presented multiple ideas to the publisher and for a variety of reasons, strategic and otherwise, they thought that Analog Church, which is a book, you know, primarily written for church leaders and those who are thinking about the intersection between um, the digital age and our ecclesiology, they thought that that would be a better book to release first. And uh, in hindsight, I agree. I think that was the right choice. But this book, Analog Christian, it's actually these ideas are the ideas that were percolating inside of me first. Um, and really, it's because they're much more personal. So this is a far more personal book. Uh, And then, you know, paradoxically, it's also a book that I think is for more people. Um, Analog Church, again, I was writing primarily thinking about church leaders and pastors and those who are thinking about the future of the church as they serve and lead in the local church. But Analog Christian really is a series of reflections that began uh, with my own recognition that um, digital technologies in particular and Uh, social media specifically, um, that it was forming me in a way that uh, I felt was unhealthy. Um, It was revealing stuff about me and my own sort of digital proclivities that were uh, impacting my own discipleship to and formation into um, the likeness of the risen Christ. And, you know, it sounds like a big giant leap to go from uh, the life of discipleship and becoming more like Christ to social media, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and whatever else. But, um, because they are so, because those realities are so pervasive in our lives, you know, uh, because, uh, per Apple and some of the, the research that they've done and the information they've publicly put out there that, you know, the average iPhone user unlocks their phone Almost a hundred times a day. The reality is we are so ingrained in, uh, our digital musings that, um, there's no, there's no denying that they're forming us. You know, our usage of, and really technology, technology's usage of us in some ways is forming us into a particular type of people. And so I've, I've wrestled with that tension for a long time. And, um, so really this, this book is in some ways, I guess it's a follow-up to the first book, but really, uh, it's, it's not just a follow-up. It's really, um, uh, on one hand, it's self indictment. It's sort of a, a way for me to confess, um, the ways in which digital technologies and social media in particular, uh, has sort of undone some formational aspects in my own life. And then the hope is that, um, as I confess those things, and as I sort of paint a picture for maybe a better path forward in my own life, uh, that that would be a helpful tool for people who struggle in the same way. And my assumption is that that's most of us, that most of us find ourselves sort of, um, you know, spiraling down the vortex of social media in ways that we viscerally feel are unhealthy, but also uh, feeling stuck. You know, feeling like, um, there's no way, there's no way out. And, uh, what I've discovered is that there is a way out. It takes effort and it takes intention and discipline for sure. But it also leads to a life that is far more meaningful, um, far more, uh, you know, um, full of contentment and, and resilience and wisdom, like I say in the book. So that's the hope with this book. So it it is a follow up of sorts. Uh, but really, it's it's a confession and then an offering of, of a hopeful and helpful path forward.
0: Yeah, that makes sense having looked to the book. It does feel – it feels like uh, instead of the next step, it's sort of a, a deeper step, right? It's more foundational, I think, uh, mm-hmm. to the condition, the problem, you as a person – Um, I do want to get, I want to get into the book, but I want to ask a writer's question if you don't mind too. Um, We've talked a lot, even already in this conversation about timelines on these things. You know, you've been thinking about these things since probably even before 2018. I know that's my experience, you know, years worth of work to to get a book out. How is a writer, how are you, how are you thinking about the longevity of these projects, trying to recognize something that's meaningful now, but then five years from now when it may actually come out, you know, still recognizing it as a challenge? Are you thinking about projects and timelines like that? And how are you recognizing some of these cultural trends that that have that kind of runway versus I'm going to start working on something and hey, that topic's passed in six months. I mean, you've really managed to find things that I think in your writing have only intensified, have only grown more significant in the time you've been working on them.
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Trace. Uh, to be totally honest, I, um, yeah, I, I don't think too much very in terms of specifics about you know the shelf life of a work. Um, I have a hard time. Uh, you know, I, I'm just a very curious person, as are you. I think we relate in that way. I, I'm constantly asking questions first and foremost about myself and why I'm experiencing life. Uh in particular ways, and maybe what that's doing to me and how that's forming and shaping, or maybe unforming and unshaping some things in me that um, I need to pay attention to. So uh, as much as I can, I just try to write in the moment and then offer it to God. And um, you know, I've been living with uh, you know, all writers who, who publish books, I think they could relate to this. You live with that sort of. Anxiety and angst, you know, is this going to land? Uh, is this going to actually make a meaningful difference in the lives of people and for how long? So I do think about those things, but, um, I found just for myself, if, if I allow myself to, to fixate too much on that, you know, on the longevity question, uh, I end up tweaking and manipulating in ways that are unhealthy. Um, you know, so I try to write in the moment as much as possible and then just surrender it to God and say, you know, Lord, you're gonna, you know, better than I do, you know where things are headed. So hopefully this is helpful for a season, however long that season may be. Uh, that's up to you, you know, and, um, and I found some freedom in that. Uh, but at the same time, at least these first two books, obviously I've been writing about, the digital age and about all that ails us in the digital age. And I am mindful that I think we're still on some of the front edges of these conversations. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm really encouraged by uh, people like, you know, Andy Crouch and Jason Thacker and others who uh, are, are, you know, lending um, really, really uh, profound voice to this conversation. So I'm really grateful just to be a very small part of that dialogue. And it does feel to me like we are on the very early front edges of that conversation. So, you know, even, you know, expanding beyond sort of the evangelical Christian world, you think about folks like, you know, more contemporary folks like um, Nicholas Carr or Jaron Lanier or Sherry Turkle or Adam Alter, um, or Tristan Harris, you know, people like this who have been writing about this for a while. And then when I think historically about names like Neil Postman or Marshall McLuhan, what it tells me is that the conversation about how technologies in general and now how digital technologies specifically are affecting our humanity, these conversations are long-lasting conversations. Um, they're not sort of cultural You know, hot button moments that are here with their 15 minutes of fame and then gone. So I think I'm also aware that I'm wading into waters that have a history to them. And, um, I think have a built in sort of longevity and shelf life. And then ultimately as a pastor and as a follower of Jesus, I am commenting for sure on the cultural moment that we're in, but I'm also really what I'm trying to do is unpack what I believe to be timeless human truths um, from scripture. And I think the shelf life for that, uh, because it's speaking to our humanity, I'm not sure that there is a shelf life. You know, so I take a lot of hope in that. I think those truths are truly timeless and eternal. So um, you know, that that's a part of my hope is if I'm doing uh at least an adequate job of helping people dive deeply into. The scriptures and into the story of God, then those truths are going to have a meaningful uh, impact and influence for a long time. Um, so at least that's my hope. Uh, so there you go. I don't yeah. know if that answers yeah. the question.
0: But. Yeah, really helpful perspective. Um, I do want to get into the book. You you write that we are in a pandemic of self-centric despair. Maybe you could take a moment to describe that problem, that phrase, self-centric despair.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, It's a really intentional phrase. Uh, by self-centric, I, I, what I don't mean is just purely narcissistic, self-centered. I don't just mean that every person walks around today, you know, with their chest puffed out, thinking that they're, you know, great. God's gift to the world. In fact, I think in some ways it's opposite. I think we are wrestling with, um, you know, even the data points this out, this sort of, uh, increased level of, anxiety and, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of this uh, sense that maybe we're not making it, we're not cutting it. And I think that's a part of what I mean by self-centric despair. So essentially, um, particularly with social media, uh, even though social media sort of presents itself as a means of meaningful connection, uh, what I've come to believe is that ultimately, um, and this isn't monolithic. I think there's a lot of good that can come about in social media. But generally speaking, I think social media runs on the fuel of voyeurism, uh, that really what we're doing is peeking um, what we think is behind the curtain of other people's lives. But in reality, we're also aware that uh, what we see on our social media feeds are actually really well curated, crafted, glossed up versions of other people's lives. And even though intellectually I think we know that, there's something bodily, you know, viscerally uh, in our body and bones that sort of reacts in a different way. And so uh, I think most people can relate to that sense of um, comparison that comes from our long sort of scrolls through social media. We just start comparing uh, the reality of our seemingly ho-hum lives against the backdrop of these glossed up versions of other people's lives. And when we're not careful, that comparison can lead to real contempt. You know, we start feeling contempt toward those who, um, present a particular version of their life. And we start asking ourselves, well, why doesn't my life look that way? You know, how come I can't live that sort of Instagram life that that person or this person seems to be living? And what that does, I think in turn is it robs us of contentment. We, we start feeling. We just live with this sort of buzzing discontent that our lives, as we compare and feel contempt, that our lives don't look, you know, in comparison, uh, to these glossed up versions of other people's lives. And that leaves to, that, that leads to self-centric despair. We, we end up sort of, um, spiraling in the vortex of self. We just start looking again at our own seemingly ho-hum lives and we find ourselves in despair, you know, we, we just, we, we feel like we can't get out because everything about life is against the backdrop of other people's lives on social media. And so that's what I mean by self-centric despair. And it is a pandemic. I mean, we think about how many billions and it is in the billions, how many billions of people globally uh, are on social media and, and the overwhelming majority of that number are on social media on a daily basis. So again, when it comes to formation, the reality is formation happens not because of what we know, but primarily because of what we do. We act our way toward being formed into a particular people. And if our actions are, you know, like our thumbs just constantly scrolling, that's forming us into a particular people. Hence the pandemic of self-centric despair. We find ourselves scrolling our way through social media on a daily, uh, multiple times a day sort of basis. And that's forming us into a people who, um, end up narrowing our view and we end up seeing life through the lens of, again, again, the backdrop of other people's glossed up versions of life. Uh, and then we just start comparing and, and contempting our way toward discontent so that's what i mean by self-centric despair and uh, i do think it's a pandemic i do think that it's you know again the data even points this out um the promise the internet's promise of a global village of communal flourishing has been proven to be a lie we're lonelier than ever we're more isolated than ever and uh, we're sadder than ever and we're more anxious than ever and uh, that is a that is a pandemic uh, a pandemic of self centric despair. So um, that's what I mean. Uh, you know, obviously, I deep dive into it in the book, but that's kind of the premise.
0: I find this idea of action as formation to be really helpful as well, too, because it, we do tend to. It's what I'm thinking I will become, I'll become. And you're suggesting it's really what I'm doing is who I will become. And so often, yeah. you know, we're really good at justifying or not thinking about the things that are becoming habitual, the things that we're doing sort of mindlessly that really are shaping and forming us. I think it's a really important warning. Hmm. Yeah, I
1: agree completely. I mean, you think about, you know, um, I would like to lose twenty pounds. I mean, that's a real that's a real thing in my life. I'd love to lose twenty pounds, but you know, I could I could Think about that all day. I could, um, you know, I could even watch some YouTube videos on exercise, you know, equipment or uh, exercise routines. But the reality is to form myself into the sort of person that I, you know, imagine in my mind, I have to actually do something. You know, I have to actually go to the gym or go for a walk or go for a run or whatever it might be. And that's not easy, uh, but it makes all the sense in the world to us. Um, and it's actually true in a deeply spiritual way. We just don't think about it that way. It's a, it's a sort of, you know, neo-gnosticism, this idea that, um, you know, there's this chasm between the spiritual and the physical or the, the imagined and the embodied. And that's just not reality. You know, if we want to be shaped and formed in a deeply spiritual way in, in, in the sort of, um, uh, deep, at the deep soul level, then that requires, it demands action, you know, it demands participation, and it demands practice. And uh, I, I think particularly in the modern Western evangelical world, we have separated the two. We think that if we listen to enough sermons or podcasts, we will become the sorts of people that God has called us to be. And, uh, that's just not enough. You know, the information is important, but the information is important, um, only in as much as it provokes us to action. And so, uh, you know, our digital proclivities are action and we have to be mindful of that and intentional about, um, our digital actions because they are forming us and unforming us, uh, in ways that we might be aware or even unaware. Um, so that's a part of, that's a part of what I hope the, the book can, can do for folks.
0: I want to get to the the part of the book where you are specifically I think the hopeful side of it which you call uh, there's a phrase the creative resistance to all of this. But I do have one more question about diagnosing the problem because you point out what you refer to as the loss of resilience that we're experiencing. Mm-hmm. And I have friends that are teachers, I've got a close friend who's a middle school counselor and one of the things he will talk about over and over is is this issue, this lack of resilience that a, a single a single mean word or a single negative social media post can really just cause a, a middle schooler's life to disintegrate in, in really profound ways, that there's not this internal resilience in, in the kids that he's counseling. And you diagnose this and actually link it to part of the age that we're in. What do you mean by the loss of resilience and the danger that it is?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of fantastic work done here. You know, I think there's tons of work, but, you know, I think... Uh, one of the books that was really helpful to me in, in thinking through this, agree and disagree. There were parts of it that I agreed with and parts of it that I have questions about. Um, but there was a book a few years ago called The Coddling of the American Mind, which um, was really helpful to me. And one of the co-authors of that book, Jonathan Haidt, he just wrote uh, an article in The Atlantic a few weeks ago, I think, uh, maybe a couple months ago or something that went viral about, you know, why the last 10 years of America have been so profoundly stupid or something like that, <laughs> And he, he just kind of, you know, he's expounding on the idea and essentially what he says, again, connecting it primarily to social media and the digital age, he essentially says that, um, you know, our social media proclivities and the way in which we spend such inordinate amounts of time on social media It's undone resilience in us. We have become uh, a a fragile people um, that we are uh, easily offended. Now, I want to be careful here. What I'm not saying is, you know, I'm not ignoring issues of genuine injustice in the world. In some ways, social media has been helpful. Again, in some ways, it has been helpful in its ability to give voice and to give opportunity. Um, to highlight uh, at scale, um, much that is wrong in our world. But at the same time, there's a give and take there, you know, uh, in some ways, it's also gone, the, the pendulum has swung so far, that everything is an injustice, everything is a wrongdoing. And um, it's not black and white, it's not monolithic. You know, yeah, there, things can be better. Almost everything can be better. But when, uh, we are hyperbolic in our admonition of, you know, wrongdoing, when we're hyperbolic in our sort of calling out of, um, offense, uh, or, you know, you think about cancel culture and sort of ha- how that works in our day and age. The reality is like anytime a person makes a mistake because of the scale of social media, it's easy for uh, the public and the masses to just cancel a person. And even that phraseology is so fascinating. Like, how do you cancel a human being? What does that mean? You know, and again, I am not saying that there aren't grave injustices in the world and that social media hasn't given voice in positive ways. I believe that it absolutely has and it has called out grave injustices and I'm grateful for that. But I think one of, um, the really dangerous sort of undersides of that whole reality is that we have, uh, become a fragile people, increasingly fragile. So, you know, the idea I propose in the book, in fact, the entire book is sort of set up on this premise of um, Paul's words in Galatians 5 when he describes the fruit of the Spirit. As the Spirit works in us, um, the fruit sort of begins to grow. And the fruit of the Spirit has all of these characteristics. And when I think about resilience, I think on the surface, most people think about resilience as sort of a clenched fist you know, tight-jawed um, confrontation, sort of standing firm, immovable uh, sort of posture toward the world. But actually, what I have discovered is that um, these three characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit in particular, patience, kindness, and goodness, that's what Christian resilience looks like. It's learning to be patient in an impatient world, it's learning to be kind and good in a world that is run on the the engine of hostility. And, and you know, it, it falls right in line with the sort of upside-down kingdom and Jesus's moral vision of the first shall be last and the last shall be first, his moral vision of winning victory over sin and death by dying on a cross. It feels very backward. You know, we don't typically think of Patience and kindness and goodness. We don't attribute those characteristics to resilience, but I think in our day and age, that is what resilience looks like. Can we be patient when the rest of the world is so utterly impatient with one another? Can we be kind and good when the rest of the world is shouting and screaming in hostility uh, toward one another? Um, I think that's what resilience looks like. And it actually, they're all connected. It leads to a life of deep contentment when we can, uh, you know, stand in opposition to the impatience and the hostility of our world with resilient patience and resilient kindness and goodness. So um, there's a lot more to say about that, but those are some, some initial thoughts.
0: Well, this connection to the fruit of the spirit was one of the things that I find most compelling about the book. Uh, the book's not just a cultural, you know, commentary on, on technology. You, you really are trying to put forward a, a, a way, uh, this creative resistance, this way of, of living in the midst of these technologies through, as a believer, the fruit of the spirit. It struck me that, you know, even as a pastor, the fruit of the Spirit sometimes becomes like – it becomes like something in script letters. You hang on the wall, right? (laughs) Right? Like it's like a – yeah, it's like a saying that we memorize. Uh, It's like the Lord's Prayer. It's like the the, the sort of nostalgia of the faith. But you're positioning the fruit of the Spirit as something really critical, particularly, I mean, I think for every day. But you're articulating why specifically for this day, this digital age. When did you connect those things to the challenges we're facing in our day to the the need for the fruit of the Spirit as believers in this time?
1: Yeah, you know, it's hard to say. I don't quite remember when I made the connection. It was a long time ago. I I just remember spending a lot of time, one, in Galatians as a whole. I think the entire letter to the Galatians has so many parallels. Um, You know, Paul is speaking to Lots of things. But one of the things he's speaking to is a particular sort of division amongst Christians in Galatia and in the surrounding areas. And so I think that was probably the the initial foray into the letter as a whole. And then, toward the end of the letter, you know when he gets to this really beautifully profound and and well known at this point you know bit about the fruit of the spirit and these characteristics, as I studied those characteristics over and over again and started doing some reading about them, what I realized was that each of these characteristics have such a unique sort of um uh, again creative resistance sort of posture toward so many of uh, the the things that ail us in the digital age so much of uh, the undoing that we are experiencing and I was just really blown away by how specific these characteristics were you know Paul is very intentional with his words he could have you know the list could have been a lot shorter <laughs> he could have just said you know the fruit of the spirit is just one or two things but he he starts naming and that there there's a lot of reasons for that but um he starts naming these various characteristics nine in particular and so um, as I just started spending time studying them, I realized each of them. And, and really, it began with practice in my own life as I tried my best to embody, you know, and prayerfully ask the spirit of God uh, to grow and develop this fruit in my life. Um, <clears throat> I began arriving at a place where uh, these were actually practically, pragmatically helpful antidotes. Uh, to very specific consequences of my digital social media, um, addictions. And so, uh, yeah, I don't remember exactly when it started, but I, I just remember feeling like this profound sense of, you know, prophetic, uh, uh, prophetic power in how Paul lays out the fruit of the spirit. You know, a couple thousand years ago, he writes this
0: and how beautifully and accurately it speaks. Um, to our age today. What do you make of the fact that they're fruit? Paul doesn't describe them as disciplines of the Christian or goals of the Christian life, but the fact that these are specifically fruit of the Spirit.
1: That's a great question. Well,
0: I think it means a
1: couple of things. One, um, I think it means that we participate in the process of cultivation, but ultimately, the life that is born of the fruit is not life we create on our own. So, You know, I have a, I have an orange tree, uh, in our front yard. Um, and we try to cultivate that tree. We water it and, uh, you know, it's in a place in our home where it can receive adequate sunlight. And so we participate for sure. We pick the fruit when it's ripe and all those things. But, um, you know, uh, all of the magic that is happening beneath the surface, you know, where the roots grow deep underneath in the dirt and the soil, and uh, all that, all the life that is teeming inside of this tree, and into the branches and the leaves, and then the fruit itself, really, ultimately, it's like, you know, if I look at it through the lens of childlike wonder, it's magic. You know, it's nothing that I can craft or create. It's not a microwavable meal. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, It's life, it's biology, it's outside my control, it's beyond my scope. And so I think that's one of the things that it means, is that ultimately we have to surrender to the life-giving process and power of the Spirit of God doing His work inside of us. So untangling ourselves from the mess we find ourselves in, in the digital age, is not work we can do on our own. Ultimately, it comes down to a willing surrender to the Spirit of God doing the cultivating work inside of us. It's really an open invitation, a desperate sort of longing, asking God to change us and to reform us into the people that he's called us to be. Um, The other thing it makes me think is that fruit does not grow quickly. Again, you can't microwave it, right? It doesn't happen overnight. Uh, several years ago, a couple of years ago, my daughter was a part of a vacation Bible school at our, our, at our church, you know, and, uh, one of the, one of the things they did, they did a, did a, you know, a lesson on the fruit of the spirit. And then they gave her a small little potted plant to bring home. And with some instructions and like, Hey, throughout the summer, you know, water the plant, keep it where it's going to get enough sunlight. And, uh, you know, maybe it'll sprout some, some leaves later. And I remember she brought it home. And uh the very next morning after we watered it, literally day two, she ran out to this little thing and she, she was so disappointed because she was like, uh, dad, it looks literally exactly the way it looked yesterday. Like, where are the leaves? How come it's not growing? You know, and I had to tell her, well, it takes a while. It takes a long time. You have to be patient. You have to be consistent. You have to come back to it every day. But if you do over time, you know, this thing will grow, but it doesn't happen overnight. You know, it's not like your chicken nuggets that we microwave and boom, there you, there you have it. It's, it's different, you know, it's not that. And I think that's the other thing it means, you know, we're not going to change overnight. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and feel like, oh my gosh, all of my digital addictions are gone and I can live without an iPhone. And, you know, all I care about is reading the Bible or whatever, you know? long walks on the beach with the lord i mean it it just doesn't happen overnight typically i mean sometimes it does i guess you know you you do have those stories but uh 99% of the time it's just a long slow steady process of again bearing fruit which takes a while and it comes and goes in seasons and so um those are a couple of things that that come to mind you know it's it's a it's it's not something we do on our own it's the spirit of god cultivating it within us as we participate and partner with him and it's also, you know, it's a patient work. It's a deep, patient, and communal work. Um, so hopefully that gives folks, uh, you know, a deep breath as they dive in, that it's not like, okay, I'm going to read this book, and then when I'm done, I'll be a different human being. You know, that would be, that's a myth. Um, it's just a, it's a beginning, uh, it's the beginning of a journey.
0: It does feel like a lot of our solutions are these sort of immediate quick fixes, right? Like I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go on a, a break from social media for a month as if, as if that's going to rework my brain or, or, you know, my phone now gives me screen time stats. So I can just feel sort of shocked in a moment how much time I spend on a certain app or on a screen. Is there a place you think people could begin if they're, if they're reading the book, if they're hearing what you're saying and they're recognizing, man, there really is some self-centric despair in my life, some lack of resilience. Um, I long for those fruit to be more present, to be less addicted, uh, a beginning place in your opinion for what that work looks like.
1: Yeah. I think it's important to, you know, um,
0: (laughs) I have a friend who's, who's an Ironman
1: athlete and I don't know if folks know what Ironman is, but it's a triathlon, but it's like the most intense sort of triathlon in the world. You like, you swim, I don't know how many miles you swim some insane amount of miles. And then you you bike like 112 miles, and then you run a marathon. Like it's literally one race. And uh, he he's actually world-class. Um, he's world-ranked in his age bracket. And he it's so ridiculous because it sounds impossible what he does. But what he says, he's also a coach. So he coaches Ironman athletes. And what he says is every person on the planet could complete an Ironman if they wanted to. And which sounds insane because it's like the human body should not be able to do that. But what he means is when you ask him to explain, what he means is um, every person on the planet can begin the journey of training toward being an Ironman athlete. And it doesn't mean you're going to be a world-class athlete, but it means that if you train and you're patient enough and you begin somewhere, at some point you can get to a place where, however long it takes you, you can complete an Ironman. It's within your capability to do so. And uh, that's always stuck with me. And I think that's what I would say. You just start somewhere. You know, if I wanted to complete an Ironman and I try to complete one tomorrow, that'd be impossible. But what I could do tomorrow is I could swim a couple of laps in a pool and I could go for a bike ride then I could go for a run, maybe run a mile, you know, and I'd be exhausted. And I'd be so far from being able to run 26 miles, which is, you know, a marathon, what's required in an Ironman race. But I could start, I could start, and I'd be closer to it by the end of the day tomorrow than I am today. So that would be my encouragement. You know, again, it's fruit. Uh, It's not a microwavable meal. It doesn't happen instantaneously, but you can begin, so you know, how does fruit grow?, well, you, you get the seeds and you dig, you dig up some of the soil, and you plant the seeds. And it doesn't mean you've got oranges the next day, but it means you're closer to getting oranges at some point than you were the day before. So whatever that looks like, um, I love Andy Crouch's whole concept of digital Sabbath. I think he talks about it in his book, uh, "The Techwise Family." You know, he talks about these different digital Sabbaths you can take. Or he suggests one hour a day. Can you have one hour a day where you turn off your digital devices, turn off your phone, don't check your notifications and just be present with the actual people you're with or just with your own thoughts. And then, you know, maybe you can do one day a week. And then he suggests at some point, maybe you can develop and grow to a point where you can do one week a year. You know, now to do one week a year Immediately would seem pretty jarring for people, but I think most people, if they're disciplined enough, you could probably do one hour a day, you know, like when you get home with your family or friends, you know, and, uh, you're doing dinner, just have a long dinner where your phone is not with you or your laptops, not around. You just shut it all off. You're not checking notifications. Most people can do that. And that gets you closer, um, to untangling yourself from all of this mess than you were yesterday. And you do that enough. And over the course of time with enough discipline and intention, I think we will find, we will discover that we're a different sort of people.
0: In some of the, uh, promotional material for the book i read through you at one point Write that you wrote this book as a declaration of hope i think that's a really important place for us to maybe wrap up the conversation with so much there is to to be worried about uh, i think we covered it uh, your book certainly does too and many other writers are as well the problems right now in our digital age what what is it that you find reason to have hope in
1: I find hope in the communal angst I see and hear and experience from people. And I know that that doesn't sound hopeful, but I think change always begins when there is a deep, visceral, experienced understanding of what ails us. And I see that in some ways, I think the COVID lockdown accelerated that. And for that, I'm actually quite grateful um, so that's my hope uh, I, I think you know th- there's that uh, that there's that old adage you know um, change never happens until uh, the pain of staying where you are outweighs the pain of change you know and there's different ways that people have said it but um, I see that today I see that in increasing measure where more and more people, are looking at their digital devices and their experience of social media, and they're beginning to ask the question, um, how do I get out of this? How do I get out of this rut? How do I get out of this cycle? How do I get out of this uh, sort of vortex of despair? And I think that's where change begins. And so I'm hopeful because I'm writing this book, not to jar people out of a particular way of thinking. In fact, I don't think this book is going to be surprising really in any way. What I think this book will be, what I hope this book will be, um, again, is language to name the angst we feel and then a better path forward, practical, pragmatic ways forward. Um, So that's my hope. That's why the book is a declaration of hope because – I think that most of us are journeying down a similar path, where we realize uh, there's a better way to live life, and there, there's a better way to become the sorts of people that God has called us to be. I see that in increasing measure. That gives me a ton of hope, um, and now we have to live with intention, you know and discipline in response to that collective angst that we feel.
0: Yeah, that strikes me as really true. And I think uh, I think great books, one of the things a great book does is it gives language to help us have important conversations we didn't have the language for, things we were feeling may have even known, but just didn't know how to talk about it with each other. And I think this book does that well. The book is Analog Christian, Cultivating Contentment, Resilience, and Wisdom in the Digital Age. It's out this summer. It's available for pre-order. Uh, Jay, best way for people to be able to check out the book, uh, to be able to follow progress with it as well, and maybe keep up with what you're doing?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking, Chase. Um, yeah, I mean the book is available, you know, wherever you buy books, little boutique website called Amazon, maybe, or other <laughs> places. Um <clears throat> and then I have uh just a simple little website, jkimthinks.com. All my work is there. And uh that's me on social media as well, J Kim Thinks, and um would, would be happy to connect with you if you uh, ever want to chat. So there you go.
0: Yeah. Well, can't wait for the book to be out. Uh, pick up both of them. The uh, IVP does such a great job with covers. They're they're uh, amazing looking books. So get both of them, put them on your shelf, uh, buy a few because you'll give them away like I've done. And uh, Jay, really excited for this one to be out. And thanks for all the hard work you've been doing over these last few years. Not not an easy topic, not an easy time to write about it. But uh, the church is is grateful to have uh, people like you thinking long and hard about it and offering us a better way.
1: Oh, thanks so much, Chase. Much love to you and deep appreciation and gratitude for you as well.
0: You can find show notes for today's episode by going to PastorWriter.com. There you'll find information on both of Jay's books that we discussed in today's episode. Make sure and get his newest one pre-ordered. It comes out this summer. And as I mentioned in the introduction, The Five Masculine Instincts continues to sell. And with Father's Day just around the corner, if you're looking for an option, I think it could be a great one. There's also group resources that go with the book. If you haven't seen them already, you can go to the five TheFiveMasculineInstincts.com. There's a PDF study guide that has group discussion questions. There's a video series. Any you need you should be able to find it as well as a uh, version reading plan for each of the five instincts that's been really popular and i'm grateful for it if there's anything i can ever do to help please feel free to email me and as always thanks for listening until next time